it's meant to come across as a, a special chapter to us as we read it. It was a special time for God's people. It seems to be a place that is marked out as special. Now, I know we all call it Mount Sinai. It was absolutely hammered into us at Theological College that it is not pronounced Sinai, it's Sinai. We were given all the reasons for it. I find it hard to call it Sinai now. Because there's no AI, it's AI, it's Sinai. So uh, to go back to saying the way I was brought up saying it, no, it's absolutely funny because I was thinking, can I say Sinai? And now I can't, so I'll call it Sinai, I'm sorry. But that's apparently is the correct way to pronounce it. <laughs> we're not bothered. But you see, Moses has done a full circle. If you remember, it was out Mount Sinai that God called Moses. But hang on a minute, wasn't that called Mount Horeb? Well, Horeb and Sinai in the Old Testament were used, uh, they, they would be frequently used to describe the same place. So the, the sort of area of Sinai of Horeb, the mountain range of Sinai Horeb, the specific mountain Sinai Horeb, it was used sort of, uh, don't know why, but it was used as the same name for the same place. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, and especially verse 12, it was where God promised Moses that he had chosen him, that he had sort of promised to be with him, and that Moses was going to be the one to bring his people out of Egypt. And now here we are, three months after coming out of Egypt, Moses is back at that same place where he met with God, but this time Moses is here with the redeemed uh, Israel. And what is great that we see in this chapter is that Israel have now been transformed into a worshipping people of God. No longer a people in slavery, no longer a people sort of wandering to this place. They are now here at the mountain and they are worshipping people of God. So it's important that we see the special uh, specialness, the special place of Sinai but also that it plays such an important part in the life of Israel. Heck, they were there for nearly a year at the foot of the mountain. 59 chapters are now given, all the way into Numbers chapter 10, are given to Israel at the foot of the mountain, living and learning how to be God's people. So three months later, the people arrive, They set up camp and immediately Moses is called up, or he goes up this time. He goes up this time to meet with God. There's three things I want us to say. I've put them up there for a reason, uh, especially for in the first part. But firstly, I want us to see the obedience of the redeemed. The obedience of the redeemed in verses 3 to 8. The the message and the meaning really uh, become clearer when we understand the structure that the writer as uh, the way he's written and the way he's put it out. And he's, it's what we call a chiastic structure. I'm sure you've heard of that before, but there's lots of it in the Bible. You may have, you may have not. But if we go on to, if you click again, we see these structures throughout the Bible. And it's where the writers repeat things, but then have a central meaning. There's a central sort of point. So in... Uh, so we got, they do it like this, they, get, they go A, B, C, they can go on and on, or, and then they go backwards, B, A, that call at the end is supposed to be A, too. But in the middle is the central part. So the first and the last, we see Moses' ascent, 
uh, the Lord's call to Moses, at the end Moses' descent, Moses' call to the enders, B, to Moses' commission to speak to Israel, verse 3b, uh, B, to Moses, again, commissioned, is told to go and speak to Israel, verse 6b. Then in the middle, there's this really important part that God gives to Moses, which is vitally important for his people. And it's remembering what the Lord has done, verse 4, saying what the Lord requires, the first part of verse 5, and then what the Lord promises in verses 5 through to 6. He goes up, he comes down. He's called to speak, he's called to speak, he's commissioned, he's commissioned, and then in the middle is the sort of meat. It's called a chiastic structure. And, the, and the, you see them all the way in the Bible. It's great to pick them out and see when they're there. But it's really important we grasp that central section of these few verses. It's really, I think, important, it's necessary for our understanding of Exodus, but also of, of the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole, especially as our place, as God's covenant people within it. Verse 4, look at verse 4. It reminds us of God's saving acts, His wonderful grace. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that a wonderful picture, being carried on eagle's wings? The eagle in, in the Old Testament, that sort of um, wonderful big bird that can carry, that gives, uh, that gives relief to us. God is giving that picture, reminding them of all that he has done. But then he reminds us of our response, of obedience. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, You've got to obey me. Being saved by God, being, uh, when we experience God's grace, there is always that natural response of obedience to God. And in that obedience, there's the promise that out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So being within the covenant, being God's covenant people means living in obedience to that covenant. It's made more explicit in verse 6 where God reiterates that although the whole earth is mine, verse 5, this is who you now are. This is who you are going to be. This is what I want you to be. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're priests in that as covenant people, they have direct access. They are citizens to the kingdom of, of the king. Therefore, they have the privilege as priests, the priestly access to the king's presence. And what we see after the, the golden calf incident, it's evident that they cannot be this kingdom of priests. So what happens? The privilege of priesthood is given to the tribe of Levi and to Aaron's family. It's taken away from them. Even though they're still told they're a holy nation, they're to be a holy nation, they are different. And what's wonderful for us as Christians today, that in Jesus, this ideal of being a kingdom and priests to serve God is restored. We are a royal priesthood, we're told, aren't we? There's no longer the need for that priestly function. We've done the full circle that God intended in His people, Israel. 
is now evident in his people today through the Lord Jesus. But they were still to be called a holy nation. They were, they were set apart from all the world, all of the nations, commissioned with sharing and displaying the, the divine nature and living in the likeness of God, their Savior. 2 Peter 1, 2-4 echoes those wonderful truths. Here we go, 2 Peter. He says, uh, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We're participators now as his people of the divine nature, the divine nature of God. We are to be the image of God. We are to display the image of God to the world. It's a wonderful picture again that we are given here of who we are. This is how God is glorified in his people. By being his treasured possession, serving in this priestly function that, that we're all living priests, a royal priesthood and a holy nation set apart. Set apart from the world, but in order to reveal God to the world. It's important we get that. Set apart from the world, but in order to reveal God to the world. And we mustn't forget, though, what God requires of His people. Look again at verse 5. If you obey me fully and keep my covenants. Israel can only be God's treasured possession. They can only be a kingdom of priests. They can only be a holy nation if they keep and obey. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant. It doesn't mean that if you live this way, then you're going to get this as a sort of works religion. He's not thinking in that term, those terms at all. We're thinking about enjoying the covenants. Israel, they're already chosen by God. They've already been redeemed by God. They are His people. But to enjoy being God's people, to be blessed as God's people, means living obediently to God. In the Old Testament, it was living in obedience to the law. In the New Testament, we are told to be faithful to the Word of God. Jesus, after His resurrection in Luke's Gospel, what did He do to the disciples? He trained them in the Scriptures. He told them to be obedient to the Scriptures. He sent them out so that the world would be obedient to the Scriptures. We can't place sort of high enough uh, emphasis on living by the Word of God. If you obey me fully and keep my command, that if is one of the biggest ifs in the Old Testament. It's a huge if. It's a huge if. If you do this, you will enjoy all the blessings of being my people. The sad reality is we know, don't we, that Israel didn't do that. And all these people who are about to receive the law, 
who were about to receive God's word to them rejected it. And as we know, only two entered the promised land of this people who came out of Egypt. Friends, we are called to enjoy God and enjoy being His people, but to do it, to do it means living obediently to His word. It's our grateful response for all that He has done to us. We are to obey God fully as His people. He's spoken His word to His people. And the genuineness, this is what verse 5 is saying, the genuineness of our being God's people is to hear God's word, to possess God's word, and to obey and live out God's word. The whole point of chapter 19, this first section, is that they are to keep hold of His covenants. The covenant that that God was so passionate and pursued back from Genesis 12. He fulfilled the covenant. He saved, he rescued a people. And now that people has been given special requirements. We have been given special requirements to live as God teaches us to live. Israel, they're about to receive the Ten Commandments and then the detailed sort of uh, application of it that followed. But the point is that there is a lifestyle that God expects from His people. And we are so, so desperately losing that in this world today, especially in the West. There is a lifestyle that God expects from His people. And it is obedience and keeping to God's Word. It's a lifestyle that even within the church we seem to want to reject. Full obedience to God and His Word. But it is a lifestyle that affects every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life. Well, Moses receives God's Word and then declares it, verse 7, to God's people. And there is a bit of irony in here, isn't there? Verse 8. They respond together. One voice, one heart. We will do everything the Lord has said. Well, let's move on. We see, first of all, what was needed. The obedience of the redeemed. But let's look at verses 8 to 15 and see the preparation of the redeemed. Verses 8 to 15, I think is one of those sort of awe-inspiring passages in Scripture. God is going to come down and meet with His people. It's a truly splendid uh, scene that we see in this chapter. But the whole point we are told in verse 9 is so that God's people clearly understand that Moses is God's appointed leader. Moses is God's appointed spokesman for his people. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. That's the reason that God was going to come down at Sinai and meet with his people. Because we've already had three months of them not really doing a good job at it. Doubting Moses, whinging at Moses getting angry with Moses. But here God says, I'm going to come down. I'm going to come down and the people will hear me speak in order that they know you are my leader for this people. Who's going to come down in a cloud. 
and he will speak directly from that cloud. It's a wonderful sign of, of God's presence. Can you imagine it? God coming down in this dense cloud over his people, speaking out of it to his people. It's a wonderful scene. It's a frightening scene. The presence of God amongst his, amongst his people. Moses is the link between the glory of God. The glory of God that no one can see. That's why he came down in a cloud. Remember, if God was to show his presence to people, then they'd be dead. We see that in the holiness of the mountain in a minute. But Moses is that link, that mediator between the glory of God and the people that he came to save. But in order to meet with God, God's people need to know the holiness that God requires of them. God doesn't just say, I'm going to come down the mountain and talk to you. He says, I'm going to come down in my holiness, therefore you prepare yourselves to meet with me. You prepare yourselves to meet with me. The Bible teaches that there are sort of requirements that we must fulfill, spiritual exercises. We might call them to to live out what God says, even to meet with God. And that's what's happening in verses 10 to 15. God wants his people to be ready, to be holy for their meeting. And they are a little bit strange, these verses. The uh, requirements, there's no great explanation for them. There's no sort of teaching on why that they had to do what they had to do. The fact that their clothes had to be clean. There's no great explanation for why it had to be like that. But, you know, the the Bible often refers... uh, to close as sort of symbols of the nature and intentions of the wearer. So maybe fresh, clean, glistening clothes symbolized outwardly the holiness that was required internally. They, they weren't allowed to come to the foot of the mountain. Death was the punishment. I was thinking as uh, Val read it out, what would I prefer, stoning to death or somebody shooting arrows at me? I don't think I'd like any of them. Could have been a bit quicker than that, but it just sounds awful, doesn't it? But, but such is the holiness of God that we can't come into his presence. That he has to keep away the sin of the world until he does something about it. And we see that, don't we? The mountain, verse 23, symbolizes God's holiness. The animals, the people cannot touch it. They're kept away until, verse 13, the horn is finally sounded. And we're also told that they were to abstain from sexual relations, verse 15. Maybe it was that for those three days of preparing themselves, they were just to focus solely on the Lord. Not on each other, on their own needs, but on God. Either way, there was a preparation needed, a holiness needed, to meet with God's people. And you know, as Christians today, we don't have to prepare ourselves in such a way. We we can freely come into the presence of God. That's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? The the curtain was torn in two. Hebrews uh, chapter 4 tells us we can come directly to the throne of grace, into God's presence to seek God. But there is that call still for God's people to holiness, to prepare ourselves. I wonder how we prepare ourselves to come to church on a Sunday. One of the things that that me and Emma agreed on is that we would try not to go out on a Saturday night because when we did go out on a Saturday night, we'd be 
not very well prepared for a Sunday morning. We'd be miserable. So we try and, if we have people around and we go, we say, can we do it on a Friday night? Because we want to get ourselves prepared right to meet with God on a, on a Sunday morning. What about when we pray? How do we prepare ourselves to pray? What about when we hear God's Word? We might not be in the same situation as Israel, but the New Testament gives enough indication that actually we are still to keep preparing ourselves for God. To be holy. To make sure we're right with Him. The way we approach Him in a right and reverent way. Well, all this is for one great purpose. And we see that in verses 16 to 25. God with His redeemed. It was all leading to this section. Moses was preparing his people for God to come to his people. Look at verse 11. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. What a wonderful experience that must have been. Yet it wasn't. It was a terrifying experience. Verse 16, the the trumpet call, the the thunder, the ground shaking, trembling violently, the whole mountain shaking like smoke from a furnace, uh, smoke billowed up. It 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 was a frightening experience. The holiness of God coming down to His people. And the people were petrified. And then Moses, verse 17, leads the people to meet with God. And God speaks. But then we get to verse 20. And verse 20 has confused scholars and theologians over the years because God's come down. But verse 20 seems to say, well, hang on a minute. Moses goes back up the mountain to receive all the same instruction and then to come back down for then God to come down again. And everybody seems to disagree about it. There's two ways of looking at it. Either the writer is repeating it again to give sort of emphasis to the seriousness, the nature of what it means to God to, for God to come and meet with his people. Or, when everybody's down, God did call Moses up. Poor old fellow. He goes up and down that mountain I don't know how many times over the next couple of chapters. It must have been a nightmare for his feet. Or, so he either does go up to receive again from God what he requires. I prefer the first option, that it's a repetition to show just how serious it is for God to meet his people. Go, verse 21, down and warn the people so they don't force their way through to see the Lord and and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Put limits around the mountain. Set it apart as holy. Either way of looking at it, God came down in a cloud of smoke and fire. Wonderful symbols that we see in the Old Testament of God. We see fire, first of all, uh, the both uh, motifs of the presence of God. The first uh, uh, sort of symbol, motif of fire goes straight back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? The flames, the fire of the swords that were, that were used to prevent Adam and Eve entering the garden whence they were banished. We know cloud, the, the smoke symbolizes again the presence of God. The, the pillar of cloud that led the way in Exodus represents God with His people and the guide of His people. 
when they built the tabernacle and the tent and the Lord would dwell down in that cloud of smoke as a sign that God is with his people. It's a repetition that we see in the Old Testament. But God came down. He met with his people and he spoke to Moses so that they could hear and that they could be sure that he was their leader and they were to listen to the Lord's commands. What does this mean for us today? What does it mean for us today? Well, like Israel, we are a people that has been set aside. 2 Peter uh, 4 was 2 Peter, it must be 1 Peter 4, so there's only three chapters in 2 Peter. 1 Peter 4 reminds us of all that we are expected. I've written it down wrong, never mind. 1 Peter though, we are reminded, aren't we, that we are a holy people, that we have been set apart by God. We have been given this special, special privilege as God's chosen people. Therefore, the call is to be holy. We are still called to be holy because God is holy. We are to exhibit obedience and a behaviour that Israel could not. And it has only been made possible for us to do it now through the Lord Jesus. And you know, by fulfilling God's command to be holy, we won't just confirm our setting apart from the world, but we will start, I think, to understand our duty to be a witness to the world. I think as we grow in holiness, if we grow to be like Christ, I believe from what the New Testament teaches, we will have that passion to be the image of God, to image Christ to the world. Because of the nature of the law as well. Think about the law in the Old Testament. Think about the law in the New Testament. It's very negative, isn't it, at times? Galatians talks about the law as a curse. We're not under the law. The law is gone. But actually we know that the law has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe in our wanting to get away from this law language and all the rules and regulations of the law. Maybe we've lost a little bit of the genuineness of obedience to God and to His Word. The Word is a way to make us holy, to make us God's, tre- God's treasured possession, verse 5. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Maybe we need to get ourselves back to actually reading God's Word, studying God's Word, obeying God's Word as God's living Word. Unchangeable, everlasting, the same yesterday, today and forever, given for His people to live for the glory of God. And through it, may we draw closer to God. And you know, through Christ and being in Christ as Christians today, we are still called to live in that total obedience to God. I said a few weeks ago, I can't remember which sermon it was, but our freedom in Christ allows us to be the people that God has called us to be. We're to be salt and light. We're to have that eternal perspective that we thought about this morning. 
remembering our purpose as, as a nation, as a people that have been set apart. But we also need to remind ourselves of the wonderful privilege that we now have with our Heavenly Father. There's no better passage that picks up on that than Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says in verse 18, he picks up Exodus 19, he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Chapter 19, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that apparently Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That's not the God whose presence we can come into today. That's why the writer says, but you have come to a different mountain. You haven't come to Mount Sinai as God's people. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We'll then see what the writer says next. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. God is still speaking to us today, friends. He's speaking to us in his word. And our call, like Israel, is to be obedient to God and to be obedient to his word. Israel failed miserably. But now through Christ, being made alive in Christ, free in Christ, we have given that special privilege to be the people of Christ as God intends. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. We thank you that we have come to that living, heavenly Jerusalem. We thank you that we don't have to fear you or your presence. We thank you that we can come to your throne of grace and receive grace, receive help, receive your presence and your blessing. But Lord, help us to be obedient to you. Help us to live out our calling, our being set apart from the world. Help us to live as your people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation that bears witness to the grace that you have poured out on us. And may we live in such a way that draws others into you, into your family, and into your glorious presence. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.